Amen. It's good to be here this uh, this afternoon, and it's been a great service so far with uh, with the sharing, with the restoration, with the uh, the hope stuff, the mission work in Papua New Guinea and in Fiji as well. Greetings from the Sydney Church, and uh, we're Lord's blessing us in Sydney, uh, your sister church on the East Coast, and, and uh, God's been blessing us. We've had, I think, we've grown by about uh, twenty five disciples, thirty disciples. We've in- increased. Uh, we've uh, since the beginning of the year, and God's blessing us, and He's blessing you as well. And so good, every time I come, this is a bigger and bigger group, showing that the Word of God, wherever it goes, bears fruit, and is bearing fruit in Western Australia. I uh, just got back from London. Uh, they had asked me to do a retreat. They had a, uh, I did a retreat last weekend, in fact, in London, and uh, for the UK leaders of the churches there, and the elders, and also the leader from the the lead couple from the Stockholm Church who some of you know very personally, and uh, for Chris and Kim Reed. So that was a, f- a fun time, and the good news about that is that they flew me out there to speak in London, but now there's a direct flight from Perth to London, so I get to have a layover here and speak at, at the church at London's expense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all working out well, right? It's all work, working out well. And I get this, and most, and of course I want to be at the church, but there's also other People I want to be with as well here, you know, and of course, and uh, we do have three grandkids here, and their and their parents, and uh, that's that's exciting. <laughs> Amen, and we love them, and I think they're doing a great job, and uh, I, what I hear, you like them as well. Amen. I talked the topic today is God's chosen people, which is His church, uh, and, and uh, that's so important to understand that the Bible is His church, and. Sometimes the magic works, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> it, it, it does too many chairs. Is there any way to just bring the computer here? Pardon? Oh, when you t- click it? Oh, okay. Sure. That'll, that'll be great. Acts 22, uh, Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock, he's running to the elders there, at Paul is, and in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. So we are supposed to, how do we feel about God's church? We care about it. Yes. We care about it. To care uh, is from a, 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 a Greek word, which is not, is, which is called poime, which means a shepherd, to, uh, and it means to, 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 to tend, to be a pastor to flock over. Uh, in other words, to, to to take care of, to take care of, to care for God's church. Uh, you know, she is God's chosen people. She's been purchased by His blood. And and how do we care? And how and how, and, and how to really take care of their flock? We're the subject of this particular sermon today. You know, the flock. You know, First uh, Peter five two. Care for the flock that God has entrusted you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you were eager to serve. And so that word again occurs over and over again to be to care for it, to be careful of God's church, to look after God's church. You know, it's God's flock, and so I think I think it's actually working. Great. Just don't touch this. See what what happens. Well, maybe not. I guess so. 
Our text today would be from 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. If you have a Bible, or just read on the screen. And it says there, he says, I hope to come to you soon. Paul's writing to Timothy. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And, um, and I, I, there's, the, there's, the, there's the ESV and, and the NIV, and I forgot which one was which from my notes. But again, how people ought to behave, how to, how to conduct themselves, how they ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You know, in, in secular Greek, this whole idea of to, you know, how, how you ought to behave, it's from, uh, it's from this Greek word, uh, anastrepho, it has a meaning to convert, to bring about, to be occupied with, to act, or to, or to walk. So Paul will say, if, I'm, if I am delayed, here's the purpose of my writing. You know, Paul still has the hope in 1 Timothy, Paul still has the hope of being freed from prison. If you read the book of Acts, it ends in chapter 28. He's in a house arrest. It looks pretty positive. People are coming and going. It all looks fine. And when Paul writes 1 Timothy, he actually says, listen, if I'm delayed, I'm, I'm still coming. And so I, I want to write you how you ought to behave. Now, by 2 Timothy, he, he loses that hope of actually being released from prison. He knows the end is near. But Paul always has hope, even in that setting, because God will always deliver us, even if it's after death. But in 1 Timothy, he hopes to still go there. So he writes a, a, a letter there, or writes to 1 Timothy, that if I am delayed, that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That is great. He's going to let us know how, how we ought to conduct ourselves. Because you may wonder, okay, we've all come in here. How are we supposed to behave? <laughs> how, 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 what, what does God mean for us to be like as we gather here? What, what ought we to do? How ought we to behave? And he uses that Greek word of since anastrepho. I've got to come in here with a changed mindset about how I approach any group. I'm going to think differently coming in here than I do thinking about coming into my club meeting or my job or, my, or whatever recreational sport, whatever it might be. And so he uses three Greek uh, phrases or three phrases in this text, which would be the basis of my three points. And it says there, the church of the living God, God's household, and the pillar and the foundation of the truth, that's who the church is. And look at the first point, if we could, uh, at, this, at this point. I guess I will just point at him. That would be even better than... <laughs> trying to click. I feel like I'm manipulating him when I do that, you know. So first of all, the church of the living God. Uh, it says that in the beginning of our text, you know, this is not just the church, but the church of the living God. Not a dead God, but the living God, which is a kind of a, a moving kind of concept. And, it's, and he says, you know, what, what is the church? The Greek word for church there is the Greek word ecclesia. And ecclesia is a formation of two Greek words, uh, ek and kalo, and ek, and ek is out of, and kalo is to call, and so the church is the group that's called out. Uh, it, it was a word that actually has a, it has a secular meaning. Uh, if, you know, uh, I, I was in England once and went to this town called Rye, and they were having a town meeting, and the guy next to me was the town crier. And the town crier was ringing that bell and had a big mouth, and he was just belting it out, saying, 
we're about to have a meeting. And so, and so the, the town was going to assemble for that meeting. They were called out of the town for the meeting. And Ecclesia is what the church is. We, we've been called here. We've been called out of this world. Uh, you know, uh, this is a very old kind of concept. Uh, usually clocks in church towers or bells in church towers were for that purpose. The bell would ring and you got to go, time to go to church. You know, it's kind of a warning, you know, and it gives, gives, gives me time. The, the clocks were on the, often on those church towers because people have been late for church since the beginning of time. <laughs> you know? And so there was the clock and the bell, and you kind of go, oh, yeah, I forgot, you know, and you're hurrying off to get to church. Uh, this word ecclesia is actually a secular term. It's not a religious term like temple, uh, uh, which had a religious sense. It was, just, it was described town meetings. And it surprises some commentators because he doesn't use the kind of the cultic terms or the, or the technical religious phrases like temple or sanctuary. And he picks a secular religious word, a, a secular word, not a, a non-religious word, because they have, because sometimes he does, the Bible does that. It takes the word like love and takes the agape, which is a Greek word for love, which was very secular. It gives it a new meaning. And so, and so, and so this meaning is not going to be like the temple, you know, it's not going to be like a sanctuary. It's going to be something different. Because, and so Paul uses a different word. Uh, you know, and, and so, man, we're always trying to make this more and more of a religious meeting. If Paul would write about this meeting, he would call it a meeting. But what do we call it? Or, or, this is our worship time, you know. It begins to sound a little bit more religious. I'm not against the concept of worship. We are here to worship God. But Paul would call this a meeting, which is that this ecclesia. We're, we're here. We've been called. We've been called out. Uh, and, and so his, the, here is this uh, phrase here. That we're the church of the living God. It's God who has assembled this group. Because it's his church. And he is not a dead God. He's a living God who's called us together at this time. These are all kind of high-sounding principles. You may, and you, you may say, I didn't come here because God called me to come here. In fact, I came here because someone asked me to come here. Or my parents made me come here. <laughs> or my parents used to make me come here. Now I kind of come, 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 come here. Or somebody asked me, you know, I, I, you know, I, I came here because I counted the cost, and so I, I have to be here, you know, <laughs> for all kind of reasons, there and many, many understandable reasons. But we need to make sure that we see the church as God sees it, and not just in from human terms. What if I'm here because God used those things I just described to get you here? And you say, no, no, it was my parents, it was my friends. Yeah, but what if God was behind that? And I'm here because I've been called out to come here to find out about God. This is his church. His son is the head of the church, and we are his body. And we, are, and we, and we have showed up at his house, and we don't normally just show up at people's houses. You know, they, they, uh, you, know we don't, you don't show up and say, I'm here. You know, generally you don't show up for dinner and say, I, I'm, you know, generally you want to be asked. Maybe you do. I, I know Trevor's a little bit more forceful. But, but we don't do that. And, you know, and, 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 and so we have been asked here by God because he has invited us to be here. We are the church that God 
has called out, we're the church that God has assembled. Well, how does God see his church? What does the Bible teach? There are very many metaphors for God's church, but I want to concentrate on one for a moment, which is the church is the bride of Christ. There are a lot of scriptures. Let me read some of these to you here and read uh, from, read on, from the screen or check on your, in your Bible in your hand. Jeremiah 2, 2, or 2, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. And so the church, again, the Old Testament is God's bride. Isaiah 65 62 verse 5, as a young man marries a maiden, so your sons will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Uh, in Mark chapter, it's even in the New Testament, Mark chapter, Mark, well, in, in John chapter 3 verse 29, uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. This is John the Baptist. And it's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. It's now complete. Ephesians 5.23, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church, not really just a man and a woman. You know, uh, in, Re in Re Revelation, where it's used often there, in Revelation 19.7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Revelation 21.2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Revelation 29, of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Do you think it's fair to say that's a pretty good metaphor of God's church? Who are we? He's called us out because we are his bride. We are his bride. You know, weddings are an awesome thing. I think you've had a few weddings here, or at least one. You know, Stefan and Karen. Where, where's Stefan? He's in kids and Karen. Kids, you know, they got married. We can talk about them then. <laughs> you know, we have a wedding coming up, you know, uh, uh, there's Lonnie and there's Cameron someplace over there in the, in the corner. There's, you know, it's kind of the guy section over there and the girl section here. I don't know how it works here. It's, you know, <laughs> you know I, 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 over the years, I've been a Christian disciple for a long time. In fact, I'm having my 50th spiritual birthday November 27th. I thought, well, you may think, wow, were you baptized as a baby or what? You know, uh, <laughs> I wasn't. I was 19. You can do the math, okay? And, uh, but, you know, over the years, I've had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of weddings, a lot, lot of weddings, you know? And, and weddings are, you know, uh, so many, you know, at every wedding I've been to, I've never been to a wedding where the bride wasn't beautiful. I've never been to a wedding. I never thought that in my mind. I never entertained it. Never even crossed my mind that the bride's not beautiful. The bride's always beautiful, Right? Yet there's so many things that can go wrong in a wedding, and I've seen a whole lot. <laughs> you, know, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's like the slides. You know, there's supposed to be music, but somehow it doesn't work, or it's the wrong order. It's the exit song rather than the entry song, you know, and all of a sudden you kind of go, everybody's scrambling at that, at that, at that time. 
There are, there are vowels, and sometimes they drop their vowels, or, con- they, they, or they forgot them, and, and they get them confused at, at that point. You know, or they give their vowels looking at me, and I keep trying to get them to look at them. You're not telling me, you're telling her, them. Don't look at me, you know. And, uh, uh, there's, you know, I mean, several times I've had groomsmen faint. And groomsmen faint more than bridesmaids for some reason. I don't know why. Because they lock their knees and, and then, wham, they hit the ground. And, and uh, we just keep on with the wedding. And they kind of pull them off to the side because it's not really about them, is it? It's about, this, about the wedding, isn't it? We want to make, you know, get them, just get them out of here and put them in the side. They'll come too. It'll be fine. You know, uh, sometimes the flower girls run off. Or the little, or the ring bearer, you know, panics in the end and bolts for, bolts for his mother, you know. Uh, sometimes the preacher, like me, will, will say the wrong names. That's really bad. I want to introduce you, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Whitten. I said, oh, no, I, that'd be a horrible thing to say, you know, at, at, that, at that time. Are you pronouncing the new, the, you know, you messed those up. I, I did a wedding once and, and uh, 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 he, he was a, a guy in the U.S. Navy. She was a... a a Filipino sister he had met on duty in Bahrain, and her parents were in the Philippines, and they had it Skyped it in. And, it was, and I said, you may now, and her dad was watching, you may now kiss the bride. And she wouldn't do it because her dad was watching at that point. <laughs> and I kind of go, I don't know, okay. We'll, we'll kiss her sometime tonight, okay? <laughs> we'll just... Sometimes we had a, a unity candle where, you know, you have two candles lit and, and you come forward and they light and, the, and then they, bl- they light the one in the middle from the two candles and then they put out the other ones because the two have become one and then the wind blows it out. <laughs> you got to go, oh, no, is that, is that from God? Is that the Holy Spirit, the wind blowing out? And, well, this is kind of the wrong match, you know, you know. And, and, and we, we rehearse everything. But mistakes always happen because people are involved. Yet we always cover the mistakes. We really do. We, we, we compensate because we're not going to get caught up with any little mistake and spoil the wedding, will we? God forbid about that. It's all about them. And we try to do the very best we can and fix mistakes because it's all about them and making it great. It's a look on the family and friends. When they exchange those heartfelt vows, you, you know, your eyes kind of water up a little bit, don't they, some, sometimes? We remember our own faith. It's, it's watching the doors open, and there's the groom, and he sees his bride, and you see this expression of, isn't this the most awesome moment in the history of mankind, you know? You know, you know and he's, he's so excited about, about that. And the look on her eyes, and she's escorted down by our father or however it works out. You know, there's so many... Th- things that can go wrong in a marriage. That's, that's the truth. There's so many things that will go wrong in every marriage that I've been involved in and in your marriage, which you've been involved in. Yet, there's, yet, yet nobody thinks about that at that moment because they dream of what can be, not what is. You know, he says, I write to you how you ought to behave, not how you do behave. You know what I mean? There's, there, there's an ought faction. There's a marriage. There's a dream of how marriage ought to be. And there's a dream of how God wants his church to be. 
And, and we look at that beginning time and we believe in the future and what can be, not what is at that moment. Because that's how Christ sees us, the text says. He sees us as his bride, not the way we are, but what we can be. We're full of stains and blemishes and scars and problems and backgrounds. But God, he says, yeah, but, but what you can be, not what you are. You're my bride, and he has that hope. We need to see Christ's bride, the church, as he sees it, not as we see it. That's a big deal. You know, uh, you know we, we, he, he sees us. He doesn't see our stains and wrinkles. Let, let me tell you. Just to say, let me tell you what's wrong with the church. You know? Oh, oh thanks. Because, you know, we, we, we don't know what's wrong with the church. You know, I'm glad you have the spiritual insight about what's wrong with the church. You know? And, and uh, you're the one gifted by God with a critical spirit to tell us what's wrong with the church. Thank you. We really, we really know that. You know, thanks. Uh, but, you know, it's not technically our church. This is not our church. Whose church is it? It's God's church. And the head of the church is Jesus, and we are his bride. We are his Jesus' bride. And one must take that into account when we criticize the bride in front of the bridegroom. You know? What if you go to, what if you're at Cameron's wedding, you know, and, and afterwards you kind of go up and say, Cameron, yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty good wedding, but I, I feel like her, you know, Lonnie's dress could have been a little bit better, you know. <laughs> you know, and she walked, when she walked down the aisle, you know, I feel like it wasn't a very good walk, okay? Like, like, a, like a duck or something. I don't know what it was, you know. And, and you know, and if I like her hair was off, and, 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 and you start listing all the things wrong, you're talking to Cameron at the wedding about all that's wrong with Lonnie. Get ready for what? <laughs> <laughs> at, at the least a punch in the nose you know what I'm saying you know? <laughs> because you just criticize his, his bride you know, he, doesn't see, does he, see, he doesn't see any she doesn't, of course she's, gonna, she's a beautiful bride she will be a beautiful bride we, but even if there were problems that were there he doesn't see them we don't see them and even if we saw them for a second we put them out of our mind because every bride's a beautiful bride and God forbid we would not say she's a beautiful bride, right? Who would, who would, us, who would, who would say that, right? That's, that's such a rude, rude thing to do. And yet, we seem to be so free to do that all the time. You're riding home from church with the kids in the back seat and talking about what's wrong with the church. Oh, my goodness. Whose church is that? Who are you criticizing? You're criticizing Jesus' bride. As if Jesus is not there. As if Jesus isn't listening. Yeah, but what about the premise? There's always problems. That's Ephesians 5. Husbands, you know, wash the, your wives with, with the word. Remove all the stains and wrinkles. <laughs> you know, we're, we've all, they're always there. They're always there. And we're not ignoring those. We get, that's called discipling. We're fixing those kind of things. But they're, but they're always there. That's his church. We want to do everything possible to make everything perfect for that occasion. You know, we, we, don't want to be, we don't want to be late for the wedding. But there's a parable about that. We don't want to be improperly dressed at the wedding. Hey, there's another parable about that from Jesus. Uh, we, we don't want to be unprepared. There's another parable about that. We don't want to run out of oil on the way. Run out of gas or petrol or, or oil. 
There's another parable about that. We need to see the church not as it is, but what it can be. Even, even here, how, how the church ought to conduct itself, as the text says, not what it's doing right now. We are all groomsmen and, and bridesmaids. And, I, you know, weddings are joyful time. The next slide as well. And, and, and beautiful brides are beautiful. But, but we're the, the groomsmen, right? We're the bridesmaids. What are we doing? We're doing everything we can to make that bride beautiful. We're putting on her sandals. We're brushing, you know what I mean? We're, we're just trying to make her as beautiful as she can be because it's all about her and not about us. Isn't that how we're supposed to come in here? How we ought to behave when we come in here? How we ought to behave towards one another to make each other as the best that we can be in a spiritual sense, looking the best we can be for Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, pure hearts, right hearts, having those conversations to present each other Perfect in Christ, which is what discipling is all about. Isn't that an exciting kind of concept? You know, we, as I said, we need to see the church as it, as, it, as it can be, not as it is. You know, destination weddings have become popular. They're super popular. But let me tell you, there's a destination wedding you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss this. I hope you're invited. It's at the end of time. Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Do you want to be at that destination wedding? That's called heaven. <laughs> and I hope you got an invite. And I hope you're getting ready for this thing because his bride has made herself ready. We are the bride and we're making ourselves ready for the best destination wedding of all times. Second point, which are shorter. Amen. Unless you're beginning to panic here. Amen. Appreciate the amen there. <laughs> we're the church, church as the whole household of God. I'm writing these things, uh, these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Uh, uh, the, the Greek word for house was the Greek word oika. It's used in other texts as well. Uh, I hope. And it says, Ephesians 2.19, you're no longer members of foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. It's time for God's judgment to begin with God's household. Hebrews 3, uh, we are God, as Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. We are his house. If indeed we, we are hold to those truths. We are God's household. Most of us learn how to conduct ourselves, which is the theme of this sermon, right? Where do we get socialized to become kind of mature people? It begins at home, doesn't it? And it begins in our families. And, and Paul says, I want, I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to learn how you ought to conduct yourself to be all that you can be for God. He's like, you know, uh, there's one before that, I, I think. Yeah. You know, I, you know, if you go back to the other, the, the, remember the other, the other slide that as a little girl who's been told to do something by her parent, and she's rolling her eyes, and she, you know what I'm saying? Not, not your kids. Not your kids. I'm talking about my kids, okay? Not your kids. Your kids would never roll their eyes. You know what I mean? Or groan or sigh 
or barely do what they're told. They, none of your kids would do that. But, but, but yet sometimes kids do that. And what do parents do? They don't just want compliance. They want the right kind of heart, don't we? You know, not, just, not just do it with the rolled eyes. Why don't you do it with a good heart? You know, we learn those things and how to really be team players and being in a family and being in a household in the family. You know, uh, the, you know, Paul is like this orchestra guy, and you have all the different instruments out there, and they're all making noise, but they're not making music. And, we, and he wants us to make music, not just noise. And so, how do you how do you do that? Well, you you teach house, you teach family, and families like teamwork, and we help each other to do just that. Uh, households do that sort of thing. It's where we learn how to eat properly how to address one another, uh, how to interact. We, we had three daughters. We raised them at the table. We had to teach them table manners to that. Here, Tess would often say, one day some, some brother will ask you out on a date and wants you to, not to embarrass yourself by not knowing how to eat right, you know. And, and, uh, and we taught to teach them to have eye contact with people and how to, how to be thoughtful to people and how to interact at the table, not just sit there, but to actually talk about your life and what's going on. Uh, we have here in the fellowship the presence of our more mature brothers and sisters and grandmothers and grandfathers to the church uh, uh, to help teach the young ones proper greeting, to kind of to get that hat off or something. You know, I'm, I'm not teaching about some rule, but just whatever the, whatever the culture says about respect and how to act respectfully with one another. Manners are just that, right? What, what, are good, what, what do good manners do? It, it says the person you're, you're addressing is, a, is an important person, and I will treat them with manners and with respect. And we like good manners, don't we? But we don't accidentally have good manners. We're taught good manners. We're taught, and God wants us to be, to be in this household, to give a hug properly, uh, to, to teach respect for the older members. Uh, households do that kind of thing, and, of course, God wants us to teach us how to behave in his household. Issues change but the process doesn't. Household families are where we get socialized, hopefully. And if our family is a bit eccentric or dysfunctional, we get a bit of a funny product. But if the church is dysfunctional or eccentric, we get a kind of a funny product too, don't we? Well, I don't want to be part of a dysfunctional family. I want to be part of a functional family, which means we function. We actually do stuff, not just show up. One of the things I think gets dealt with all the time is what I would call uh, selfishness. What's the first word that kids often learn? Mine. Mine. It's, 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 a, it's a toddler's favorite word, you know. What's in my hand is mine. What's in your hand is mine. What's in the other child's hand is mine. Mine, mine. What concept do we constantly teach? Share. <laughs> Share. Share. You know, most commentators of our generation say we are played with a kind of a narcissistic culture. And, and, and narcissism uh, is uh, from the Greek, it's a Greek story about a guy named Narcissus. Narcissus. And, and a narcissus uh, had a beautiful, had, had a girlfriend, and her name was Echo. And Echo was, always, was calling out, Narcissus, I love you, where are you, Narcissus? But he didn't hear her. He was too busy looking in, the, in the, the reflection in the pond. And so all those words came back to her, thus the name Echo, you know. And the, and the story goes that he's so enthralled with the way he looks in there that he doesn't eat 
or drink and withers away. Selfishness does that to people. Selfishness just does that. Vanity, egotism, conceit, boasting, life that is all about me. That makes for a very unpleasant household. And you want you say, oh man, Isaiah five eight says says uh, says what what do you add house to house and your field to field till no space is left and you you are alone in the land. You know, I listened to a podcast that my wife recommended the other day by a guy named David. Um, Brooks, and uh, he was a, a writer for the New York. He is a writer for the New York Times, and and uh, you know, and, and he was talking about about three or four years ago, his marriage fell fell apart. He lived in an apartment by himself. He's successful in the world, uh, yet 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 he's, his apartment. He's in it by his kids have left. It's just him in his apartment. Opens the drawer where there should be knives and forks. There's just envelopes filled with things. Where the plates are, there's posties or something. And he says, man, my, he said, man, uh, you know, I've got freedom and it stinks. You know, and he, and he says, he says, yeah, you know, I, I want to be economically free. Does that sense? You know, I want to be politically free, but I don't want to be relationally free. <laughs> you you want to be relationally free? All by yourself, he says. That's he says. It it stinks. It stinks. You know. And he, and he says. You know. He says. He says. Freedom. It's not a river we swim in. It's a river we f- we swim through to get to the other side to settle down in relationships. <laughs> but you can't have that relationship without giving up some freedom, whether it's marriage or God's church. Paul in 1 Corinthians you know, 8 and 9 will keep saying, yes, I'm free, but I'm free to, to take care of other people. I, yes, I have the right. I have, have my rights. Yeah, but it's, I want to be free and have my rights all by myself? <laughs> or will I think about the other person? We learn that in God's household. God wants us. We always, I read one article, you know, uh, friend, you know, uh, uh, Friends, we have time for family, we have time for job, but no time for friends, you know. And Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, passages that you know, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How are you ought to behave here? You ought to love one another. How? Like Jesus loves us. Oh my gosh. And he goes on, I, I and them and you and me, that the world may know that that. That you brought that you brought me to, so the world will know that you sent me and have loved me by our love for one another. They'll know we're, we're the real deals, and by our love and by our love for one another and our unity for one another, the world is convinced that Jesus is from God because they'll come in here and see us acting that way, and they'll say, "How can this be? There must be a God. There must be a God." Oh and we need to have that kind of sense of yes, man. I, I this is how we're ought, this is how we ought to behave. How do people become Christians? Do they got to get a Bible and read it and become Christians? No. Uh, I've studied the Bible with lots of people, so have you, a lot, a lot of, of, a lot of you. But if a person, when a person I'm studying the Bible with comes to church and sees it incarnated in real life, 
no longer, we're no longer having Christianity lessons. We're having followers of Jesus lessons. And it's all true. Oh, wait. You're not joking. This is the real deal. <laughs> and this is for real. <laughs> you know, your people are putting others' interests above their own. And I, I, they're not, why are they so friendly? What, what are they up to? That's our suspicious nature. <laughs> because, well, they want you to become a disciple. I think they want me to become a Christian. Yeah, they really do, you know, <laughs> and because and it's, it's life and Jesus is the truth. But, but, but again, how we ought to behave. We have, John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So he says, love like I loved. And he, and he says, I no longer call you uh, disciples, but friends. And, and so you're, uh, we make friends. And, and, and God it says, I chose you. You didn't chose me. So I didn't wait around for you to choose me. I chose you. And so we come into church here, and, and we don't wait for somebody to talk to us. We initiate. We talk to people. We talk to people. So look at one third and final point. Church in action, pillars and foundation of truth. I'm writing these things to you these instructions, so if I'm delayed, you'll know how you ought to conduct yourselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Not, not, not truth, but the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. You know, uh, you know leaders are, are meant to, to specifically are tasked to make sure the church not only supports the truth, but guards the truth. Ah. Uh, First Timothy, you know, talks about the, the truth in all these different passages. The next, the next slide. You know, uh, again, the truth, the truth, the truth. Amen. Not just a truth, the truth. It doesn't change. You know, the church is the pillar and foundation of, of Scripture. A building has, uh, if you go to, I just came back from London. I went to one town. They had a cathedral. And on the side of the cathedral were these things that supported that structure. And the church is that which supports the truth. And, and leaders are meant to do that. He says in Hebrews 13, remember your leaders who spoke the word of the God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Jesus is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so how, how do we make sure that the gospel that you heard is the gospel that your children hear and the gospel that your grandchildren hear? Church history says that doesn't happen. The church of the first century and it does not look anything like the church of the fourth century. The church of the fourth century looks like a Roman senate or something with the bells and towers. The church of the first century there looks like this group. But somehow the leader, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever if the leaders make sure Jesus stays the same. But all these forces in our culture are trying to make us change Jesus and change what it means to be a disciple and what is truth. And we get blurred about those kind of concepts. You know, the church is supposed to support and defend and practice and propagate the truth. You know, next slide too. The truth that we need to really guard. Just keep on going. Wish my clicker worked. You know, uh, here's some, some things that we need to su support. How to become a disciple. You know, the, the, the right meaning of that, that's under attack all the time. We're constantly being told, make the door and the road broader. You know that. 
You feel that. And a loved one dies, you feel it more. You want, you want to just change it for all these different kinds of things. How to live as a disciple. Wow, you mean, you know, wow, the guys in the first century were so, so committed. People in the fourth century weren't. There were some. Those are the ones who became monks. They became the minority of people who said, somebody's got to take this seriously. But somehow the rest of the church was like the world. I commend the monks. They preserved a lot of truth. But God wants his church to be that way all the time. To keep sin is sin. Our cultures are trying to redefine what that is all the time. To keep the church as his bride. Uh, the service is meant to be like a banquet full of joy. To never forget the mission. Yeah, we fixed, we fixed some schools and some, some things, but, but we also had a bunch of studies set up and we'll baptize because of Spock Core. And those, those projects are something to help, to help support our mission, our mission all the time. God wants to understand that. The church is meant to be like a wedding banquet. You know, some banquets have dancing at it. And, you know, if you go to a wedding, and at the end of the wedding, there's dancing. At Lonnie's wedding, at the end of her wedding, I'm sure there's going to be dancing, right? I've, I've been practicing. I've got, but some, I'm working on that, you know. And, and, and you know, and, and, and where, I, where I grew up in the United States, uh, they'd always be dancing at the end of every wedding. But sometimes people would do their individualistic dance. You know, it's kind of like, you know, here's a Seinfeld, and she's dancing, where everybody's staring at like, that's, that's kind of weird, you know. And sometimes some of us dance like that, unfortunately. It's not a pleasant sight. We're enjoying it. We're in our own little, our own little world. But at some point, where I come from, they, they begin, they've been a few, a few line dances, you know. And one of them was, was the electric slide, you know. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. You, you have a, a small group of people dancing, and then it's the electric slide, and then you've got to have everybody kind of goes out there. The grandmothers, their grandfathers, the young ones, the little ones. And they all line up. And they all have these moves, you know. And, and you know, you get it all down, you know. And he says, it's electric. <laughs> you can't see it. It's electric. You've got to feel it. It's electric. Oh, it's shaking. It's electric. Got to move. I'm gonna, going on a party ride. I've got to groove, groove, groove. And from this music, I just can't hide. Are you coming with me? Come on, let's take you on a party ride. I'll teach you, I'll teach you, I'll teach you the electric slide. Some say it's mystic. I've got to move. Come on, let me take you on a party ride, and I'll teach you, teach you, I'll teach you the electric slide. And so all of a sudden, everybody's doing that. And all of a sudden, everybody's all together, man. We're all, and everybody's just, you know, you know I, and I'm kind of I'm always forgetting, but, but the, I forget what to do, but I look around to learn what I ought to do. You know, and coming into church, we, we're not just doing our own little individualistic thing by ourselves, but we're doing it together. And we forget what to do. We look around to our left or right and say, oh, yeah, that's how I'm supposed to behave. That's how I'm supposed to behave. You know, what is our, our mission? In 1 Timothy, Paul's dealing with a church that seems distracted. It's focused on itself. It's filled with everyone getting into head knowledge or strange teachings are drifting off track. The me generation, just you and me, and God in some emotional worship service. And it's our job to always make sure that we keep the church at the right point. Jesus, does, 1 Timothy 2.4, he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man 
Jesus Christ, that's the truth. That's the truth, and nothing will shake the truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of the church, and the charge for you and the church is to make known that wisdom to a lost world. And we need to be people based on the truth, people who are truthful and loving it. Next slide. You, you are the bride of Christ. You know, and, 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 and though our sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. And we all come in here with stains and wrinkles and scars. And though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We are the bride of Christ. And let us celebrate in our fellowship what that means and how to behave in God's household, his church. Amen.